Please turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we will start to see Paul change directions in this letter to a church he loved, that he was proud of, that was growing by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. What I mean by changing directions is that the first chapter was about the marks of a good church, and um, he had such good things to say about them. He was proud of them. He, he recognized that this church was a work of the grace of God done through the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, and it was producing spiritual growth in them. And so chapter one was really a chapter about them. It was about the sheep. But now as we get to chapter two in this letter, it's no longer about the sheep, it's about the shepherd. It's no longer about the character of the church, it's about the character of the disciples and Paul the apostle, the ones that arrived in Thessalonica, what was true about them. Chapter one was what Paul knew about the church, but as Paul is going to be accused of being a fraud, by troublemakers around the area in Thessalonica, uh, he now has to move in this letter from commending them to being, doing what any humble pastor would never want to have to do, talk about himself, but he had to commend the ministry he had there in order to prove that what was being said about him wasn't true. That those Jews that in Acts 17 uh, quickly came into action, you know, calling Paul a fake and trying to run him out of town and bringing a riot uh, to the house of Jason. They were, they were questioning the sincerity of Paul's teaching and the integrity of his life. They hated Paul, they hated his message, and they were working to discredit both his words and his works. And so really what you get a glimpse into in chapter 2 is a pastor having to defend himself, even though, like I said, he might be loath to do that because a pastor isn't trying to point anybody to himself, he's trying to point to Jesus Christ. And in defending himself, because he did know that he did ministry God's way, through God's Spirit, preaching God's Word to God's people, and they were a work of His grace, then in all of that, the true north star that He had been pointing them to was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really any spiritual leader, if you know what you're doing, or at least know the starting point, is this, that you are trying to lead someone else to follow Christ, not ultimately follow you. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. And so when you see a phrase or hear a phrase today repeated in chapter 2, you know, you yourselves know, or you recall, or you were witnesses, and he is saying, hey, think back. Remember what I stood for when I came. Remember the example that I gave. Because ultimately in doing that, I can stand alone on this, that I did not come to promote Paul. I came to promote Jesus Christ, and you are the living evidence of that. And that's the ultimate explanation by way of his example. They were there, standing in Christ, growing in Christ. But when he was being accused of false motives and false methods and a false message, he had to be able to say, you can remember these things about me. And those things will authenticate and vindicate and ultimately show that those who are accusing me are the ones that you need to stop listening to. And for us today, if you desire to engage in any form of disciple-making, you want to leave an impact on people's lives for eternity, then this chapter is, by way of an example of Paul, a master class in spiritual leadership. Uh, this is good for any leader. I know that 
Many would look to this chapter and say, well, Adam, this is what Paul did, and he was an apostle. Uh, How am I supposed to live up to that? Or isn't this really an example just for pastors and elders in a local church? I would say absolutely it is. When I'm preaching this chapter, I'm indicting myself. As in you should be able to look at my life or the life of an elder in this church and say that's absolutely what we should see in them. But don't let it end there. Because the principles and priorities that Paul is going to bring out, the precepts that he taught and the pattern that he gave is good for all of us. I don't think by the end of this study today that any of us are going to walk out of there and say, hey, that's good for him, the preacher. No, that's good for those elders, but it's good for anybody that wants to make an eternal investment in someone else's life. To walk worthy of the God who called you into his kingdom for his glory. So that's what we're paying attention to today. Follow along with me as I read chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and we'll see the marks of a good leader. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word to us. May he bless the preaching and hearing and applying today to his glory. The first 12 verses, Paul reminds the Thessalonians what he did that God used for their good. His example to them will be our pattern to follow, and he gives us five priorities to pursue in these 12 verses. Priority number one, the mark of a good leader, you pursue them purposefully. A good leader pursues people with a purpose. Verse one, you yourselves know, there he is, being a leader who wants to lead by example. Every time you see that phrase, that's what he's doing. He's saying, despite what anybody else might be saying about me, this is what you remember. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. That word means futile or empty. What's he saying there? He goes, look, right out of the gates. Our time with you wasn't pointless. And nor was the effect of our ministry fruitless. Now, he could say for himself, I... 
my purpose in coming. I know the cause. I know why I came. And I can sit before the Lord and, and, and whatever these accusations might be against me by these jealous Jews uh, trying to discredit my name, I know I came to you with a purpose. I pursued you. I came to Thessalonica for a reason. It wasn't by chance. We weren't just spinning the globe and then putting our finger down on it and saying, let's try this place next. In fact, if you turn back to Acts 17, you'll see that after Acts 16, where he was in Philippi, uh, people are coming to Christ, but he runs into opposition. He gets persecuted, and they kick him out of the city. He's thrown in prison. He departs in verse 40. Verse 1 of chapter 17, before he arrives at Thessalonica, he travels through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and that may seem insignificant, because we're not going to test you on that later, test your Bible geography, but if, if you were to lay a map of uh, our western North Carolina region over the Mediterranean area, you would see, and maybe for your mind to understand the purposefulness of Paul, you would see that maybe the trip from Philippi to Thessalonica going east to west with two spots in between, about, they say, 100 miles or 90 miles or so, would be approximate to if you were uh, in today day uh, preaching out in Statesville and you get beat up and kicked out for the gospel and then you're on a mission to somewhere next and you stop by after a day's walk in Hickory, sleep somewhere, maybe the Duncans put you up, feed you breakfast, you hit the road the next day from Hickory and then you get to Marion and I don't know anybody in Marion so you're, you're finding a granny's country kitchen and eating a biscuit, putting one in your pocket and then you're heading out to arrive in Asheville. That's about the distance Paul, Silas, and Timothy traveled by foot after being what? Beat down, beat up, thrown out. But what's interesting is that in Acts 17.1, it says he didn't stop in those places, as far as we know, in preaching the gospel. He didn't have a, a purpose, per se, to visit there. He was trying to get to Thessalonica. Now, we don't know his motive for that. How Was he running to get away from the city he had just been persecuted in? We don't know it. But all he knows when he's talking to this church whom he loved and went to with on a mission with a message is that I came to you and it wasn't in vain. It wasn't pointless. It was with purpose. And I know what my purpose was in coming to you. I mean, that's essentially what verse 2 is talking about. It was to preach the gospel. But you know the effect it had on you that also proves that it wasn't futile. You're the proof. That we weren't just in happenstance moving around, finding our next destination. We came for a reason, and that's what good leaders do by way of example. They can point back to the purposefulness of how they target their next mission. They have intention in mind. And you might say, well, Adam, how do we know from Paul's life uh, where he would stop? What was the method to his missional madness? Well, we know two things from the book of Acts and all of his letters. He went places purposefully, and he went places prayerfully. What, what do you mean purposefully? Well, he only had a pretty simple mission every place he went. It was to seed, lead, and weed. He went to seed. He went to cast gospel seed. He was preaching to people that might not have heard it yet. He was showing up in synagogues who didn't know that Jesus was the Christ. So he was casting seed. Or the beginning of Acts 15, what does it say that he wanted to do? He wanted to go back and visit churches. He had already casted some seed. He wanted to strengthen brothers. He was leading. He was saying, it's not enough for me just to get some followers there. I want to go back and see how they're growing. And then the third thing, which rhymes, is he was weeding. 
He was weeding out who? False teachers. Cons, charlatans, guys like the ones that were discrediting his ministry in Thessalonica. He had to go back there and clear his name. Not because he was uh, taking offense to any of this. He didn't want to do what? Let their criticisms of him undermine the believability of the gospel message. Now, you would think their own lives would have been enough testimony, but a, a false teacher can, can really flip somebody upside down, really make you second guess. You know, you could imagine what they might have been saying. Oh, you know, things got tough. Paul bailed. Where is he now? Haven't heard from him, had you? But he says, look, the, 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 the mission we were on to reach you, it wasn't in vain. We came for a reason. And now you're changed because of it. So how are you going to say we, we came in vain? How are you going to question that when you're the living proof? And for us today, Paul's purpose purposeful mission and then prayerful mission. Uh, we know he was prayerful because every epistle you read, what's the first thing he's doing? Praying for a church. Saying, I've been praying for you from the beginning, from Philippians 1, from the first moment we were partners in the gospel. We're going to keep praying for you because this is a work of God. So how do we live that same missional life? What maybe can we pull out as a pattern to follow just when it comes to being purposeful? That you pursue people through prayer and God's providence. That's how through prayer and God's providence. You, you just look around you and, and prayerfully say, and you do this season to season, time to time, Lord, this person that I'm pouring into, uh, it's getting tough. Should I stick with it? You know, Or this other person that's um, been coming around, I don't quite know what they, what they really want. Help me to discern that. It's a prayerful mission that we're all on. And that's included in the purpose, but we're also praying, but we're also looking at God's providence. There are times in your life where somebody's crossing your path, and um, if you believe in God's sovereignty, you have no accidental relationships. Every single person in your life, God has put for a reason. I mean, you either believe that or you don't. If God is sovereign, there's, there's, there's no accidental friendships, relationships, co-workers, bosses, employees, neighbors. They're all there for a reason. The question is, what are you doing with it? Everybody in your life has fallen into one of two categories with your mission. They're either lost or they're found. They either need you to sow, or if they are in Christ, they need you to what? Lead and feed. Every single person. Now, you might be saying, okay, great. How do I actually narrow that down so I can be more effective? Well, that's, that's where maybe you turn to the example of Jesus, right? I mean, he had 12. He narrowed it down somewhat. And then within the 12, he had three. And, you know, that, that three, Peter, James, and John, you always see them closest to Christ. You always see them at, at the moments, whether they're the great moments at the transfiguration or where, whether they're the Peter moments putting his foot in his mouth saying, I'll never deny you. Or, or, or the disciples arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Highs or lows, he had his three. And my exhortation this morning to you is, are you purposeful? Are you intentional? How are you tracking the seemingly random people in your life? If you want to be a good leader, as in a spiritual leader, a disciple maker, are you intentional? Are you purposeful? You got a little notebook. You got names written down, dates when you met with them, things you talked about, prayers you're going to pray for them, how you're going to follow up. You can look back. You can track. You can know what's going on. Uh, you, you need to get out of, out of your mind, oh, you know, I'm just that Christian that I just kind of blow in the wind with the Spirit. I just, I, you know, I, I just open my Bible and find... Oh, how long will my honor become a reproach? You know, is that how you read your Bible? Is that how you make a disciple? 
Is it unspiritual to be intentional? It wasn't for Paul. He tracked, he knew where he was going. Now he was prayerful in it, saying, Lord, where next? Sometimes it got shut down, followed a different door. But he was always purposeful. He knew what his mission was. Do you know what your mission is? It starts with being purposeful with the people in your life as a disciple maker. Because without it, what's, what are you aiming at? Where are you headed? And that's constantly happening in my life. You know, I'm constantly, okay, Lord, who's, it, who's, who's the fish that swam in my net that I didn't even try to get? I mean, that's providence. I'm praying it, but I'm looking. I'm going, why does is, why is that guy keep coming around? Where did it even come from? You know, I mean, that's been fun in the last few years to see at this church, how the Lord's brought people from all over the place. You know, why'd that guy want to come down and talk afterwards and follow up and have lunch? Nothing to me is by accident, because I believe in a sovereign God. And, and I know the most basic mission he has given me is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So it's purposeful. I got three that I'm constantly saying, hey, um, they're the ones that I must make time for. Why? Because they're the most hungry, and I'm going to feed them. You know, after that, I may look, and from season to season, January to summer, hey, depending on what's happening in the ministry of the church or going on in my life, there might be one that I'm going to, hey, okay, they're top 12. It's not like I have some rating system of numbers that I'm calculating and people drop out of the top 10 like in the football rankings and, you know, you're out, you're in. But there is some calculation to it in the sense of I want to be a good steward of my time and that's what limits me the most. It's what limits all of us the most. It's not usually our commitment to a person. It's our capacity to fulfill the commitment we made, isn't it? And I, do, I was the youth pastor here, had a wonderful staff of 30 volunteers 10 years ago, and it was a joy to do that ministry. And there would be time to time, I'd have leaders come to me and they want to have that conversation about, hey, I, need, I, think I'm, I think I'm bowing out. And in my early days, it just always went to the same speech about commitment. What, you're not committed. And I came to see that often it wasn't the commitment. As you talked to them about it, they were committed in heart to discipleship. It was the capacity in their life and the season they were in to fulfill the commitment they made. And that's true in all discipleship. It changes in time. Certain seasons you do have to back out or jump back in. Now, sometimes with those leaders, they came back from a winter retreat and they, like me, you know, uh, fell down trying to snowboard or something and it was more of the pain of their body speaking or the guy one time got run over by a giant earth ball in the gym and broke a rib and, you know, all right, brother, you can go. But six months from now, I need to see you back here. I'm going to check those ribs. But that is the reality of making disciples. It's a constant. And that constant isn't fixed. And prayerfully and providentially, you're asking, Lord, who is it next? Who is it now? Is there a chance that I, this disciple I thought was out of my life is back in my life? That's not by accident. There might be some things we got to go back and recover. But constantly, you're looking and you're asking, where do you want me next? Who do you want me to minister to? And you could say this much about Paul's life. His fishing net was never empty because he was always casting out with a purpose. He didn't know what was under the surface. He didn't know what fish were swimming where. But we know that God is the one that sovereignly directs it. So you cast it out and you pull it in. 
First thing, pursue people with purpose. Second, we learn from Paul's example what made this good church. It was partially a good leader, as in it's, it's God's grace, it's God's work. But in Paul defending his ministry, we're seeing these marks of a good leader. Priority number two to pursue, you coach them courageously. You see that in verses two to four. A good leader will teach people with boldness. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, there it goes again, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. This wasn't empty bravado. This wasn't buttering people up because there was a truth that had a vital connection. Paul knew the word was from God and not himself. Therefore, the courage was coming from the God of the word, not himself. That's what he says right there. Look. The reason I had boldness in God to speak to you is because it was the gospel of God. It wasn't my gospel. So, yeah, you can reject the messenger, but look, I know the message. And the message is what gives me the boldness. That's what makes me want to speak up. That's what makes it worth it for me to get beat up. I know I've got the most important thing in the entire world, the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners. So I'm going to be bold with that. And whatever it costs me, it costs me. And that's a courageous leader. When we know that our boldness comes from God, not us. Because fundamentally, the gospel is about God and not us. The gospel is about, first and foremost, what God has done for you, not what you do for Him. That's the starting point that, for all of us. Friend, if you don't know Christ this morning, if you're not clear on the gospel, maybe you've heard an opposite gospel that the gospel is all about you. And so the moment you start down that path, it becomes what you can do for God. You may do that in a very um, sanctimonious, self-righteous way and try to earn your way to God, or you may think that you're the center of the universe and God's just here to, to, to make all the stars and planets align for you to have your best life ever. The starting point of the gospel is about a holy and gracious God who sent His Son to earth to die for sinners. It's about Him. He's at the center of it. Now our response, recognizing this great and holy and majestic, perfect, righteous God, you say, who am I? What am I? I'm a sinner. And if that's the standard He has, perfect holiness, to dwell with Him forever in righteousness, Something's got to change me. But see, you don't go down the path of I've got to start changing myself. That's, that's why Paul was so hated by these Jews. Because he came preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. He starts in the synagogue. There were some God-fearing Greeks. There were some Jews that turned in repentance. As it says in verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. But the rest of them were going, this message he has, he's leading you all astray. That message is good news. It says there's a God of grace. It says we don't got to obey the law. No, Paul would have established the law. He wouldn't have differed with the Jews over that. How do you think he even got into synagogue to teach? Why, why, why has Timothy got to get circumcised? He's going to establish the law. God demands perfection. Always has, always will. Here's the cure. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. 100% perfect obedience to everything God could demand. And the highest demand in it all was to love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody could live up with that. Nobody. 
And that's the good news. That's the gospel that, God, that Paul preached. And that's what gave him confidence. That's what gave him boldness amidst much opposition. Well, what was the opposition? Well, you can tell in verse 3 uh, the opposition by way of the denials. You could see the things he was denying that proved the thing that he wasn't doing, right? He's, he's saying, I didn't come in error or impurity or by way of deceit. The fact that he has, deny, he has to deny those three things means that's the thing that the Jews were saying about him. They were saying he was a false teacher. They were saying he had impure motives. They were saying his methods were deceitful. You can't trust his message. You can't trust his motives. And you can't trust his methods. And so he denies all three of those. He goes, when I came teaching and exhorting and preaching to you the gospel of God with much boldness, I, didn't, I wasn't a false teacher. And what false motives did I have? I, I came to you black and blue and bruised from the last town. I might have still had the marks on my ankles from the stocks. What, what was I going to get out of it? And I wasn't deceiving you. This was no bait and switch. That's what that word deceit means in the literal translation of the Greek. It was a word for a hook that you put bait on. What was his bait and switch? Shows up, says, hey, you want to be persecuted? It's a good life. It wasn't his message. His message was, as Christ suffered, you're going to suffer. How's that deceiving? And he's got the marks to prove it. And they're the proof. So his courage comes from the boldness he has in, in the bold message and the God of that message. But his courage also comes another way in verse 4. It was, it was something even deeper for Paul. He says, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. It wasn't just that the gospel was so great. And, and that gospel was such good news that he could be bold with it. He's saying, um, the reason I can... The reason I do this is because I didn't pick me. God did. It was a stewardship that gave him the boldness to. It was the courage that came from God approved me and entrusted me. And I don't deserve that. But if, if he called me into it, and um, if you think I'm here to please men, Check yourself. Um, God doesn't grade on the curve of men. My work at the end of my life will be by the God who examines our hearts. See, see what you guys could think I'm doing. You can listen to my message and you can try to pick it apart. But he says, I have one who's going to grade my paper and he has the perfect key. So there's no fudge in there. He's saying, not only is it a privilege and an honor that I'm a steward of this gospel, I was approved by God and entrusted with it. When I speak, how could I possibly be worried about what you think of me when I know who's actually grading it? That examines me as in the present tense, meaning it's going on all the time. Every time Paul speaks, God's got the red pen. But what's he testing? He's testing the heart saying, what's your real motive for doing this? Because there is a pressure. James 3.1 says, not all of you should want to be teachers because there is a higher standard. But look, you would, you would never want to stand up in front of everybody if you felt like, okay, every single word, I, I got you know, precision, we want to be that as teachers. But it's God who examines the heart that's the great examination because that gets to the motive. That says, yeah, I'm going to say some things, some, you know, 
transcribe my message. You could do that. Don't do that, please. But, uh, you know, Adam, you said this one thing. and he, Okay, yeah, um, sorry, I was looking at my notes. I got out of order. That's not really what matters. He's saying the motive. Were you preaching you? Did you have some hidden life? Were you trying to fleece the flock? Were you trying to make yourself look good? Were you trying to lay a burden on people? It's God who examines the heart. And listen, it's not just true for the preacher. It's true for anybody that wants to make a disciple. Because it's all teaching. One-on-one, you're teaching. If you're not teaching people divine truth, you're not discipling them. You're giving them your opinions. Which, I mean, hey, maybe you've got some credibility in your life. You've achieved some things. People watch your life and they want to say, hey, I want, you know, you did good in your job or your kids have turned out, you know, okay. Or, and you probably have some tricks of the trade, but what you are actually doing is you're, you're passing on the truths and the principles and the precepts from the Word of God. And that's a life group leader here in this church. It's a small group leader in youth ministry. It's people leading over in the children's ministries, watching some of your kids right now, putting the Bible into them. We all should feel the weight of that because it's God who examines our hearts. And so when we know He is the highest level of examination, He sees what's on the inside. When you can pass that test, you'll have courage to teach. You'll be bold because you'll say, Lord, before you, I I know my weaknesses. I, I see it before you. I see it in your word. Help me. Use me. What an honor. What a stewardship. I chose the word coach courageously because I wanted it to expand it beyond just in our mentality of, you know, it's got to be the person up front teaching to a big room. Because then it just limits this, doesn't it? Oh, you know, that's a great, and a great sermon for Adam to apply in his own life. I'm off the hook. No, you're not. Because if you've got people in your life that you've got a voice into their life as a believer, you're a teacher. You're an instructor. You're an exhorter. You've got something you can pass on to whoever it is that God's put in your path. So calling all coaches in the room. Why do you think we got the equipping classes going on right now? The lead class Curtis is teaching and, and some of the other elders. The parenting kids class. We got a parenting teens class coming up. Why? We want to equip you for the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4. For the building up of the body of Christ. We want you to take that and, and start some Bible study outside of here in your neighborhood with some people that are curious about the word. We want you to be the impact over at LR in your campus. And how do we do it? We equip you for it. In the home, we want you to see your home as a little church, as Whitfield called it. Every house is a little parish. And then so we got books over in the bookstore for you parents this month. We bought a new one, how to lead your family and, and study in the Bible each night. Why? Just because it's about equipping you to do it. It's not just about up here. Paul's teaching was bold because he knew the accountability he had from God, the, the stewardship he had, and it, it made him courageous, made him excited. You know, and, and, a, and a person that bold and excited could, like Paul, maybe be a little intimidating, maybe with the authority he has. So the next point shows that this, it, from him, it wasn't about his own authority. It wasn't about uh, him flexing his title, his position, his power, because in uh, verses 5 to 8, you see that he led with love. He led with love. Right after talking about being a courageous teacher, a bold teacher, one who is entrusted with the gospel, one who rolls in the town, the Apostle Paul, capital A. 
man, he could come in with some heavy, bearing down, lording over. Is that what he did? Well, first he said, if you're going to just get, we're going to just talk about my speech as if you think I'm one of these uh, super apostles, false, false teachers. Uh, sometimes even a person who who's, uh, has the perception of being loving is just being flattering, verse 5. I mean, that's what flattery is. Like, why do you think false teachers actually have mass amounts of followers? Because they're not nasty to you. I mean, think of the false teachers today. Go find the pastors with the most followers on Instagram. Uh, they're not being nasty to you. They're buttering you up. Old Testament language for flattery. It's the teacher whose words are smoother than oil. Or the, the adulteress who flatters in Proverbs. Her, her lips drip with honey. A false teacher is enticing. That's why people follow them. And it sounds so good. You get sucked in. But what's connected to that? Well, verse 5 tells you. This is the pathology of, of even a, a, a perceived really loving and nice and flattering speech. Why do they use it? He says because they've got a pretext for greed. I mean, why do you think you can draw a straight line between the two? Most popular preachers in America in biggest mansions. Nothing new under the sun, friends. Nothing new at all. The pretext for greed, that word is, uh, pretext is a word for a cloak, trying to hide something, trying to put a cloak over a light is the compound word for pretext. It's saying underneath, they're greedy, they want money, they want popularity, they want, well, the popularity is the way to money. They just want the money, and they'll say whatever it is you want to hear, so you follow them and send it. He says, that's not what I did. The, the love you had for me, it wasn't me trying to build a platform, verse 6, seeking glory from men, either from you or others. And, and here's how we know he understood what was at stake. Look at this next line, and it's the most important one, understanding how we lead with love when we could, Lord, with authority. Though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. We had the right to do it. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I could have came over top. God put me here. I mean, that same entrusted with the gospel, approved by God, that could have gotten to Paul's head, but not to his heart. And he could have rolled into these cities, especially when he, re he revisited them, wanting to strengthen them, and anything he saw that was out of line, what could he have done? What do we do when we have some position of authority, some title, some authority, and we see something's out of line? What's the instinctual thing to do? Be gentle like a mom with a baby? Or tell people to get in line? Flex on them. Use your position. Because the position gave you power. And the power's the shortcut. And it'll get results. But he says, that's not my style. I could have asserted it, but I didn't. There's the principle we've looked at over the last few weeks. The power of positional authority is not as impactful as your, what? Personal relationship. Long-term influence. You want people to follow for the right reasons? You're going to do it by leading with love. You want to get instant results? You'll do it by lording over. But here's the problem you're going to have. In 10 years, you're going to turn around 
And you won't have anybody behind you. At least not willingly. You'll be a shepherd without sheep. Because if you're not leading with love, and your whole style of leadership is lording over, they'll find the affection somewhere else. And it might not even be true. It might be built on false teaching. But if they sense that this person actually loves me and cares about me, where's that sheep going to go? They're going to go there. Where are you going to be? Standing there, hey, I'm I'm in charge here. I got the title. That's all you have. And that's the message that Paul is saying here. I, I could have done this, but I did that. I proved to be gentle. That word gentle is just kind, tender. How tender? A nursing mom with her babies. And I mean, just think about that image for a second. First, the picture of the child, which is a picture of a young church like this, dependent. Um, it could be easily swayed. Ephesians 4 has that picture. Don't be like a child tossed back and forth by waves of false doctrine and the trickery of men. And he's saying, that was you. you. I was like a mom with her baby with you because you needed protected. You needed provided for. All of that comes from mama. And then you think about the false allegations. If, if, if Paul were to be all about money, power, and respect, right? That was the allegations. He's here for money. He wants power. He's, he's just trying to get popularity. And you go, okay. Um, how's that mesh with a picture of a tender mom and her kid? Money? With that baby? No, they're draining your pocketbook. Diapers grow out of their clothes in a month. I mean, it's, you're not getting any money out of that one. Power? Who's actually in charge when that baby's screaming in your face at 2 a.m.? Like you're going you're gonna to raise up over them with your power and win them? No, never works. Respect? The money you use to buy those diapers and the kid pees in your face? So is, is that the image he's given us? Hey, you want to have money, power, and respect? Be like a mom with her kid. No, he's not. Because the gospel isn't about money, power, and respect. If that's what you're in it for, you have no idea. But if you're in it for the good of your sheep and the glory of the God who called you, this is how you do it. Paul says, this is how I did it. I had so fond an affection. Look, he, he could have just left it at the illustration and that would have been enough, but then he gets personal. I had so fond an affection for you. I was in love with you from the start. I was well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become so dear to us. It was a joy to be with you. We loved you from the beginning, and this is a true shepherd. The longer I was with you, the more I loved you. Right? It doesn't end. But the longer we're with our sheep, the more chance they're going to what? Bite us, stray, rebel, kick. I don't know if sheep kick, but you know. 
But I'm just saying that that's what you're going to be in for if you're in it for the long run. And he goes, the longer I was with you, the more I loved you, the more affection I had, the greater joy it was. Why? Because I was, I was seeing Christ formed in you, just like a parent has the patience with a kid knowing this, this biting and kicking and fighting child, though, look what God is shaping them into. Parent, was it all about you from the beginning anyways? No, it was never about you. The kid was a gift. So Paul's saying, look, that's, that was my mentality to you guys. How could I possibly want anything for you other than what God would have for you, the gospel of God, and give you my own life because you're a gift to me? And that's what leading with love versus lording authority is about. So whether you're a pastor or lay person, any disciple maker in here, are you leading with love? If you're forgetting what that's like, Here's two reminders. We, we talked about them in 1 Corinthians 13. Love's patient and love's kind. What's patient love like? It's that long in the nose to get red. Remember that image? And it's this idea that, that uh, my love for you is so deep that I will not react quickly to the offense you give to me. And love is kind and that I will not respond hesitantly to the good I can do for you. That's what love is. That's what it does. And that's a true disciple maker. Next, after that, leading them lovingly, verses 9 and 10, he talks about guiding them genuinely. A good leader, the example that Paul leaves for us, the pattern to follow, the precepts to know, is to guide them genuinely. A good leader will model authenticity, verses 9 and 10. Again, you just follow this chapter because it lays itself out just with these words. You remember, you know, here in verse 9, you recall, brothers and sisters, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Notice, in each one of these sections, it's always going back to, look, our mission was never lost. Even in all the madness of what we were doing, guiding you, teaching you, loving you, what's always there? The gospel of God. That's why we were there. But it didn't mean that we loved you any less, that you were just some project to work on. You're witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. I mean, verse 9, Paul's ultimately not trying to commend a Puritan work ethic. He is just trying to say, look, if anybody wants to doubt the sincerity of the time I was with you, you can even just judge it purely by the authenticity of the effort I gave that I was going to work while I was there just to remove any accusation that I was some charlatan, some freeloader, some con. I mean, even when you go back to Acts 17, some commentators believe, you know, that even in Luke's mention of a number of the leading women um, in that church, you know, this idea that Paul was, he was out there for money and he was, these leading women would have been wealthy and the, these false teachers were going around or these accusing Jews saying, hey, watch out for this Paul guy. He's going to try to steal your wife and steal your money. And um, what does he say he did when he was there? If you flip over to chapter 4, he, he had to command them. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business and work with your hands as we commanded you. So clearly there was maybe some resistance to this idea that even though now I'm following Jesus Christ and waiting for his return, I don't need to work anymore. And for Paul to command them to work, now he was going to have to be the example to follow. And so if you flip over just two pages into 2 Thessalonians... 
You'll see that he, he can back it up with his own life. 2 Thessalonians 3, 8 and, or starting in verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we, speaking of himself, Silas and Timothy, going all the way back to their first visit, we didn't un- act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship. There he's repeating himself from the first letter. We kept working night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right. There's that. I could have asserted my authority. I had the right as an apostle. A worker's worth his wage. Feed the ox. Because I, you know, I laid that aside because I wanted to be a model to you to follow my example. So that when I tell you this, if anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either because they're leading undisciplined lives. So Paul was a genuine guide. He was a model of authenticity. First, on a very surface level, his work ethic. But underneath that, it told you about his character in verse 10. Devout and upright and blameless are all synonymous ideas for the uh, above reproach life of an elder in a church, of a leader to follow. Devout, just a, a word pertaining to being holy, moral quality, upright, pertaining to this idea of almost a visual of being lined vertically with the right line, God's line, God's word, God's standard. He's saying, in my moral uprightness, you can line my life up to what? Christ's words, Christ's commands, and I modeled it. And then that last word, blamelessly, well, he's just saying, look, if you get the first two right, if you're living devout and upright, how's somebody going to blame you? This is how I behaved amongst all of you. And I would just say to encourage some of us, and you read that and you go, well, that's good for Paul, but again, we're going to fail at some point. It's true. A friend of mine shared the quote with me, leadership is an intentional decision of choosing whom you will disappoint. You say amen to that? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to step out and step up and want to lead some other people in any avenue of life, but the hardest avenue to lead in is what? Modeling Christ. You know, you're preparing those people for disappointment. And really, what does that disappointment go back to? Well, Christian, not if you sin, but when you sin, whether in front of that person you're leading or you sin against that person you're leading. The greatest lesson you actually get to show them now is your humility to go back and repent, show them what repentance before God looks like, and reconciliation with what? With the person you offended. I mean, what a great lesson that is to model. That's a powerful lesson to give because it shows, hey, simultaneously, I know, I know my standing with God. I know my righteousness is in Christ. I know my expectation is to live a devout and upright and blameless life, but I know I'm going to fail. So when I fail in the people that are closest to me, which a big part of how you are a witness or how they witness Paul's life is he actually let them close enough to his life to see it. Because if you just kind of keep people at arm's distance, they're never going to see the up-close faults you have. But is that just about self-preservation for you, trying to put on some show, trying to put on some act that you don't sin? So if you're spiritually leading someone else, let them get close enough to see your life, just like physically. Your kids get close enough to see your physical faults. As I age, common... Dad, you got more creases on your face. Thank you. Or, Dad, that mole on your neck, it's getting bigger. Thank you again. I've been picking at it for the last four years. I mean, that's a picture. What? 
You let somebody close to your life, they're going to see all the things that aren't perfect about you. Spiritually speaking, it's the same thing. What are you afraid of, though? Because in them seeing your faults, you get to show them the faultless one. That you go before the throne just like they do. And you point to Christ and His righteousness just like you want them to. And then you're authentic, you're believable. And good leaders that guide genuinely, verses 9 and 10, uh, gain credibility for the last lesson. If you have been genuine in your guiding them and authentic in your Christian life, then you can put the last piece together in this. A good leader will push you personally. Verses 11 and 12. Good leaders will, will challenge those who are following them with a little bit of zeal, a little bit of gusto. You know, the, the kind that says, like, I, I know who you are in Christ, and I want you to live up to it. So let's try. Let's go. Verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, this last triplet of words encompasses how Paul challenged them personally. And they're not the same word. Each one of them has a little bit different angle on a, a person in your life who at a certain season, and for a good reason, sometimes you have that first word, exhortation. It's more of a teaching word with, with a, a concept of making an appeal uh, to come alongside them with the goal of strengthening them in their faith. And then this next word is probably the most tender. It's, it's encouragement. It's actually, look over in chapter 5, verse 14, where Paul says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, but encourage the faint-hearted. A picture of, of somebody whose faith is so, so weak. It's, it's the picture that was said about Christ, that the what? The smoldering wick that just has the smallest flame he wouldn't put out. It's not producing any light. It's not doing anything great. But he's what? Instead of just saying, I'm done with it, moving on, he's protecting it. He's saying, I want to I fan this, this little spark back into a flame. That bruised reed that can no longer be used for anything good, I'm not going to break it off. That's this word for encouragement, encouraging somebody faint-hearted. And then the last word does have a force of strong charge, solemn declaration, insistence on a matter. Well, what's the difference between all three of these? It's the lesson that Paul could teach that the strength of your words is going to be dictated by the weakness of your sheep. How you're going to approach them, how, how he spoke to them. Look, he says, hey, a father, like with his own kids, he's not just 100% ex exhortation all the time. Otherwise, exhortation is going to lead to what? Rhymes with the kind of exasperation. If that's your only speed, Exhort, 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 but there's no encouragement. There's no comfort. You're going to burn them out. Now, on the other hand, if all it is is comfort, 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 and you're dealing with one like back in 514 that's unruly, well, then you're just going to be what? Letting them stay in their sin. And so Paul could say, look, the, it's the weakness of the sheep, and that weakness could be like a frailty weakness or I'm going to bite you weakness. But the strength of your speech to them, how you lead them, how you teach them, how you push them has to be what? Dictated by what you're seeing. And you need to look at them with the eyes of a father does. The eyes of a father he's talking about is the heart of a father that says, hey, deep down I love you and I'd do anything for you. 
So right now, I've got to take you over here, and we've got to talk about this. Versus, I've got to pick you right up right now, and I've got to carry you. There's different speeds to this. But at the end of the day, verse 12, the goal is the same. Whether I was exhorting or encouraging or imploring, I was calling you to walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you. I'm just, I'm just on his mission in your life. And so we need to match, you know, this same Paul who could nudge them, push them like a dad, is the Paul that could nurture them and love them like a mom. And do you have both of those operating in your life as a disciple maker? That nudging, holy nudging, and nurturing? It's not, oh, that's just, you know, that I, I'm, you know I, I, the way I'm wired. You know, I remember talking to a friend about, you know, it's just, you know, it's because I'm from Pittsburgh. I'm just going to be blunt or I'm going to be gruff or whatever the word, I, whatever excuse I was trying to make to a friend who knew me pretty well. And he, go, and he goes, you know, maybe that's actually not a good quality. It's like, oh, really? Well, I mean, growing up where I was, that's all I knew. A coach, a teacher, hey, knucklehead, learn the play. So that's kind of how I learned to operate for a while. And then you move to the South. And they say, oh, bless your heart, learn the play. <laughs> I mean, either way, you're calling them an idiot. And there's a gentler way to say it. But this is a Christ-like combination, these pictures he gives of a mother with care, a father with care. One is comforting and one is confronting. One has grace and one has grit. And you need to be able to do both for your disciples. And you just have to realize that probably in our own self-preservation pride, we're going to avoid one or the other. We don't want to be too soft or we don't want to be too hard. And Paul combines these images of a mother and a father and says, you can be gentle and still strong, and you can be tough and still tender. And if that's hard for you, maybe you need to pursue a discipler who can do both, who can show you what it looks like. Nobody's perfect out there. Nobody's got perfect balance in it. But, you know, if you're talking to somebody in life group this week and you feel like, you know, I've seen this person get tough, and I've seen this person be tender. Maybe that's the person you need to seek out and say, hey, I want to flesh this sermon out a little bit more. Can I get some accountability from you? Because a good leader is going to push him personally. So wrapping this thing up, these five marks, I mean, they are, they're, they're a pattern to follow. And we can even you know, say, I mean, if I don't do these things, am I not a good Christian? No, these, these aren't the marks of being born again. But these are the marks of a good leader. So they're really right in front of you today to say, what do you want to do with them? I mean, what's the alternative? Instead of pursuing people intentionally, like you just want to be purposeless, is that the kind of Christian life that's attractive? Um, instead of coaching people courageously, teaching them boldly, you just want to be passive and then let the people that you love in your life kind of just figure it out for themselves? Instead of leading with love, Nah, I'd rather lean on my authority. I mean, you just have to go through all five and say, is it, like, what do you want? Ultimately, what result do you want to see? If you want to see Christ for if you, want, if you want verse 12, read it one more time. And, and maybe, take out the word that and put the person you love 
and you would give your life for. Take out the word that and put their name in it. So that so-and-so would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Is that person worth it? Is God's glory worth it for you this morning to do an evaluation of your life as a leader? And you are one. If you've got people you can influence, you are one. Is God's glory and their good worth it for you to evaluate and maybe change some things up? Let's pray we can do that by His grace. Father, we thank You for Your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank You for Your mercies that are new each morning. None of us have the corner on this. None of us are Paul or even close to it, let alone Christ who he was trying to imitate. But we do have your word so we can know what the guide is. And we do have your spirit so we know where the power is going to come from. And we can pray and ask to give us a greater measure of faith to be able to put these principles into practice not so that people make much of us, not so that we get the glory, not so that we get the popularity, no, so that your name would be magnified, the same name that we've called upon to be saved, that we have tasted and seen that you're good. We want that for the people we love the most. So help us, we pray, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.